Welcome to New Life with Adam Camp. This podcast is a ministry of Rosemont Baptist Church in LaGrange, Georgia. Please visit us on the web at rosemontchurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this moment to open your word, to submit ourselves before your truth. We ask you by your spirit to transform us, by the renewing of our minds, to mold us and shape us that we may shine the light of Christ here in the Grange and around the world. May your name be glorified. May the gospel be preached. In Christ's name, amen. Today we, um, we're going to be looking at Acts 22 and 23, so if you want to find your way there. It's Acts 22, right there at the end, and then uh, 23. But before we begin, I just um, I just want to confess something to you guys, and and it, you know I don't want to make anybody feel awkward or anything, but I just need to let you know something, and that's that I'm not perfect. Now listen, in the last service, somebody said Amen. <laughs> I, I'm I'm not. In fact, I told you all last week if you were here that. that my, my uh, wife's grandmother passed away. She was 93 years old, lived a, a full life. And so my wife had to travel to Louisville, Kentucky for the, the funeral. And she took our five-month-old. And that meant I was staying here with my two young daughters who have a lot of energy, a lot of energy. And, and, and as I said, last week, my father-in-law was actually supposed to preach. But he had to go to Louisville. It was his mother that passed away. And he was going to preach the uh, the sermon there, the message there, and he was able to do that and preach the gospel um, as they celebrated the life of of of, of his mother, my wife's uh, grandmother. Um, but that meant that somebody had to preach, and so I called Adam kind of last minute and and said, "Hey, look, you know, Greg's going to have to go, but I just feel like there's this message that I need to preach." And and Adam was gracious; he allowed me to do that. But what that meant is I needed to prepare. Like I had this idea and kind of where I felt the Lord was. Uh, leading me to, but I didn't know what that would look like, so I needed to do sermon prep. So on sa- uh, Saturday, we took Jamie to the airport, dropped her off that morning. On our way back, stopped, got the girls a little breakfast, and we came back to the house, and, and I just gave him a tablet. Like I was like, look, I need you to go watch something and, and just kind of do your own thing, and I'm going to go study. And, and it was all going good. It was working. They were happy. They are watching something. At one point, I even got them popcorn. I mean, I am just knocking this parenting thing out. Like, I really am doing a good job. They're happy. I'm happy. All's going well. Well, then my youngest daughter walks in the room, and she says, Dad, I, Dad I'm hungry. I thought, ungrateful kids, come on now. I've been feeding you. I've been getting you drink. And I looked at the clock, and it was 4 p.m. Y'all, I didn't feed my kids lunch that day. I was so wrapped up in that thing, but I did like any smart, wise father did, and I just turned the tables, and I was like, that's because we're having pizza and brownies, kids. They had no idea that they had missed lunch, and so they just thought I was the greatest thing. Dad's giving us pizza and brownies. This is amazing. Later that night, Grace, she's too smart, looks at me and goes right in the eyes, Dad, we only ate twice today, and I thought, man, I am busted, so I talked to Jamie, and I knew I couldn't hide it. And I was like, look, at this point, they have clothes on. I have clothes on. I, I, that's as good as I'm going to get at this moment. They're alive. I'm alive. And, 
sometimes I think we can look at pastors' lives or speakers, and I'm not saying you guys do that to me, but we have these people that, that, that are kind of put on this pedestal, and we put them on a pedestal. We kind of raise them up, and, and I think that's a dangerous thing to do. See, I think it's fine if we give someone, uh, uh, we call them to a high, account, uh, a high level of accountability, a high level of responsibility, and give them appropriate level of respect. There's nothing wrong with that. But when we put someone on a pedestal, it can be dangerous. It can almost, also almost become this thing where we, we kind of think, well, well, they're different from me. They're the super Christian, and, or, or, or maybe that's just them, and, and I'm not like that. And so we have this kind of weird view of who they are. And I think kind of we can do that with the Apostle Paul. I mean, the things that he did, it's just sometimes hard to fathom. And I'm going to just be honest with you. We talk about him a lot when we're working overseas because he was just this great example of a missionary. And sometimes I just didn't like the Apostle Paul. Like, well, how can he do that? How does he stay that resolute and focused on the gospel? But he's this great example. And that's what I love about today's text in 22 and 23 because I believe what we're going to see is a real... Um, humble side of the Apostle Paul, this real, uh, this human side of the Apostle Paul that at least I could very much relate to. So let's think about Paul's life up until this point as we see it in the book of Acts. So in Acts, uh, uh, in Acts 7 and 8, we see Saul is just, he's persecuting the church. He's going all throughout the land and his uh, desire is, it says, he ravages the church, entering house after house, drags off men and women, and commits them to prison. I mean, he is a man who stood at the stoning of Stephen, and it says he approved of it. But then in 9, the Apostle Paul is dramatically converted, sees uh, he's blinded by this light, converted to Christ, and here is what God tells Ananias, this believer, about the Apostle Paul. He says, but the Lord said to him, that's to Ananias, go, for he, speaking of Saul, Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And, and Paul, like from the beginning, is just focused on proclaiming the gospel. In fact, it says he, he in Damascus goes, shares the gospel in the synagogue, and the people uh, get mad, and they try to kill him, and he gets away. And what does he do? Goes straight to Jerusalem, shares the gospel, the people get mad, and he gets away. Listen to what it talks about, because we're we'll see he goes on these three missionary journeys in Acts 13 through 21. He goes on these three journeys, and here's his summation of what he experiences. This is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in 24. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and in thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from, uh, from other things, there is the daily pressure of, on me of my anxiety for all the churches. I just have a hard time relating to that. 
You know, I mean, this man who is so sold out for the gospel to go through something like that, who gives his life uh, consistently and stands boldly, it's just hard for me to know and relate to him as to really what that like is like. So you kind of put him on this superhero status, right? He's kind of the super apostle. So in rather than being, uh, he's the exception rather than being an example of what we are to live like. Well, in today's text, I think we see the humanity and humility of Paul, how he is focused and courageous in sharing the gospel, but yet in a moment of weakness or discouragement, the Lord graciously restores him. And that's something that I can really relate to. And we're going to look at three challenges from his life. I'm going to go ahead and give you these challenges, and then we'll kind of unpack them. First is this, be aware of God's providence and willing to act. I'm going to explain what that means. Be aware of God's providence and willing to act. Number two, be honest about your sin and quick to repent. We have to be honest about our sin and quick to repent. And three, be transformed in the Lord's presence and lovingly restored. Be transformed in the Lord's presence and lovingly restored. See, Paul, on his third missionary journey, had been revealed. The Spirit had revealed to him that he was to go to Jerusalem, I mean, and then on to Rome. And here's what he says as he's kind of on this journey. When he speaks to the Ephesians, he says in in Acts 20, he says, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me that in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Paul knows that this is not going to be easy, but he is committed to the calling that God has placed on his life, to this calling to proclaim the gospel. He gets to Caesarea after he's crossed the Mediterranean, and this prophet comes up to him named Agabus. Agabus takes Paul's belt, wraps it around his uh, wrists and his arms and then his legs, and he says that this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of Gentiles. Paul does not waver, even amidst that. Here's what he says, Acts 21, verse 13. For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul is resolute. He is committed to the leading of the Lord and the calling that's on his life. Well, when Paul gets to Jerusalem... There, there's this um, disruption because the, the believers there who are Jewish think that Paul is anti-Jewish, that he's rejecting their customs and their traditions. And so the elders there want him to, to do this act of, of, of kind of joining some men in a Nazarite vow, going through an, a, a time of purification to kind of show his fidelity with the Jew, his Jewish brothers and sisters there. Paul agrees, submits to this um, uh, this, uh, this opportunity, and what happens? Goes to the temple to complete his vow, and a mob, I mean, and then a group of uh, Jews from Asia see him, and they know who Paul is. Paul has just ministered in Asia, planted churches, proclaimed the gospel. People have surrendered their lives to Christ as the promised Messiah, and they don't like it, and they're going to kill him, and they say that he is anti-Jewish, anti-law, anti temple. In fact, they say that he brought a Gentile into the temple, which was strictly forbidden and punishable by death. Well, in the midst of that, a commander in the Roman army sees what's happening, goes, grabs Paul. He's taking him up the stairs to get him away from this this, uh, crowd. And what does Paul do? Please permit me to speak. And he turns and he shares the gospel with them. 
He shares his story. And we looked at that last week, how he uses this model of talking about his life um, before Christ, how he came to know Christ, and then his life after Christ. And there, and there are these worksheets. You can get them on. There's a small table here, and then one as you go out the doors. And, and you can work through and kind of figure out your testimony. And you guys have been contacting me this week saying, yeah, I'm doing that. Like, I'm writing my testimony out because I want to boldly proclaim that when someone asks me the reason for the hope that I have. I want to be a witness to Jesus Christ. But Paul doesn't finish his testimony in that situation. In fact, as soon as he says that he was sent to the Gentiles, the whole crowd just goes ballistic, berserk, and it ends right there. And that brings us to what we want to focus on today. That's Acts chapter 22, verse 22. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging, to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out uh, for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and condemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do for this man is a Roman citizen? So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship with a large sum. Paul said, I'm a citizen by birth. But those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately, and the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had, been, he had bound him. Our first challenge today is to be aware of God's providence and willing to act. Now, what do I mean by providence? Providence is a term that we use kind of in, in theological discussions that describes God's work in the universe. Right? Here's a, here's a simple definition. Divine providence is the governance of God by which he, with wisdom and love, cares for and directs all things in the universe. What does that mean? That means God is completely in control and he is actively bringing about his purposes in the world. That's what separates us from deists, right? So you have these designations of people's beliefs. You have atheists, don't even believe God exists. Agnostics, maybe, maybe not, not sure. Deists believe that God created the world put it in motion, stepped back, and has nothing to do with it from that point on. But we don't believe that. We believe that God is actively involved in his creation to bring about his good purposes. We believe in the providence of God. Do you know why? That's why we can read Revelation 21 and 22 and celebrate. That's why we know that, that, that heaven is going to be this place that is amazing, and God is going to bring about, about this people who have been redeemed for his name and for his glory. Tony Evans says this about providence. Providence refers to God taking what you and I would call luck, chance, mistake, happenstance, and stitching them into achieving his program. See, God is completely in control, and he is active. But why is this important? Why is it important that we have this doctrine? Why is it important that we understand that God is actively at work in his creation? Well, I was kind of reading some articles on this, and, and John Piper kind of explains the, the, the Heidelberg Confession's explanation of providence. And in and, 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 and the Heidelberg Catechism, what a catechism is, is a series of question and answers, and it teaches you uh, Christian doctrine uh, through this series of questions and answers. And here's what the answer is as to why providence is so important. 
What advantage is it to us that God has created and by his providence does still uphold all things? Why does it matter? And this is why. That we may be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and that in all things which may hereafter befall us, we place our firm trust in our faithful God and Father. That nothing shall separate us from his love, since all creatures are so in his hands that without his will they cannot so much as move. We believe that God is bringing about his great purpose in this world. We see that most clearly in the life of Joseph. You remember Joseph in Genesis. What happens to him? His brothers become jealous and they sell him into slavery. He goes from being into slavery, a slave to being in prison. And then from prison, where? To the second in command of all of Egypt. He's experienced this horrible thing, but because he is second in command, he's able to save of all the land from this famine that is about to hit, including his own people. And in discussing this, what does Joseph say? Genesis 50, 20, here's what he says. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. God was at work. It looked like a desperate situation, but God was at work to save people through this act. So let's look at Paul, Paul's situation. How do we know that Paul was aware of God's uh, providential provision and willing to act as a result? Well, think about Paul's life. Paul was ethnically what? He was a Jew. But he was by citizenship what? A Roman. So that meant that Paul was able to relate to the Jews and the Romans. He could speak the Hebrew dialect. He could also speak Greek. That he had this understanding of the law because of his Jewish heritage, but he also had these rights and privileges as a Roman citizen that he claims in this, in this, uh, in this story. What of those, which of those things did, did, did Paul bring about by himself? None. That's God providentially working in Paul's life for this moment to bring about this situation that he may persevere through it. Think about Paul's conversion. What happens? Paul is persecuting the church. He is blinded by a light from heaven. Jesus appears to him, tells him that he is to go talk to a man who will tell him what he's to do. At the same time, God gives a vision to Ananias and tells him that he's to go to Damascus, talk to Saul, pray for him so that he can see, and then tell him what he's to do. Which of those things did those men bring about by themselves? None. This is God providentially working to bring about his good purpose, purpose in the life of Paul. What does the Spirit tell Paul is going to happen? He's going to go to Jerusalem and then to Rome. How is that brought about? Paul's in Jerusalem. A mob captures him, wants to kill him. A commander has to, to, to grab him to save his life. And because of Paul's Roman citizenship, because of the rules and laws of a, section, of a secular government, he saves him. And eventually he takes his appeal to Caesar, which ultimately takes him to Rome. But none of this had to do with the Roman government. None of this had to do with Paul bringing this about. This was the hand of God bringing this about in Paul's life. And then you're going to see in 23, same thing happens. They plot to kill him. His nephew finds out about it, informs him of it. And so then eventually he is taken away and protected by the Roman government. Paul's not bringing these things about. He's accepting God's divine providential work. And in the midst of it, he doesn't play the martyr card, right? He doesn't say, no, 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 commander, you don't have to hold me. Just let me go. 
God said that I'm going to go from Jerusalem to Rome. So if you let me go, the mob can't kill me, right? God's already promised it. No, that would have been, he would have been a fool to do that. But he accepts that God has provi- provided him with this way to be protected. He doesn't look at the centurion who's about to flog him. And if you don't know what flogging is, it is a terrible thing. Paul has not had this yet. He had had the lashes, but not a flogging. So a flogging is when they take this, um, this instrument that's called a scourge or a flagellum, and it, and it has these strips of, of leather on it that are tied at the ends or pieces of bone and metal. And they take this instrument and they stretch the prisoner out as tight as they can, making the skin just, just ready to almost bust. And then they take this instrument and they hit the person on the back and it just pulls meat and flesh away. Paul didn't say, no, 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 just go ahead, hit me with that. God's sovereign, he'll turn my back into iron. No, he uses his Roman citizenship as a means to accomplish God's purpose in his life. He looks in verse 25 and he says, is it lawful for you to flog a man who's a Roman citizen and uncondemned? I remember hearing a, an illustration when I, when I first uh, began to follow Christ uh, that really just kind of communicated this idea to me. So there was this man, and he wanted to go fishing. But there was this huge storm that was about to hit uh, the land, that was about to hit out into the ocean. And he watched the news, and, and this meteorologist says, Look, do not go out fishing. Do not go out into this weather. It is going to be absolutely terrible. But the man says, oh, no, 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 I'm, I'm going to go. I'm just going to trust God, okay? So he gets in his boat, and he, and he goes out. Eventually, his boat capsizes and sinks, and he's left floating around. But fortunately, there is another boat that's nearby that sees him, comes over, throws the man a life preserver, and says, here, take this. And he says, no, 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 no. I'm just going to trust God with this. He'll take care of me. So the, the ship thinks he's crazy, and they, say, they call these rescuers, and they say, look, you've got to come out and take this man away. He is going to drown. So they call a helicopter. A helicopter brings this life raft in, drops it down, and tells the man, get into the lifeboat. And he says, no, 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 no. I'm going to trust God in this situation. Well, the man drowns. And eventually he gets to heaven, and he is just irate with God. He says, How is it that you did not rescue me from the middle of the ocean during the storm? I trusted you. To which God gently replies, Son, I sent a warning through a meteorologist, a life preserver from a boat, and a life draft from a helicopter. What did you expect? It's God's providential provision for the life of Paul. You want to change your 4th of July situation, I mean, 4th of July celebration this year? Meditate on the providence of God to bring you to that moment in time with these freedoms in this country. And it'll make it a, a normal everyday celebration with fireworks into something that is a worship service of the holy God who has allowed us to live at this time, in this moment, for his purpose. Think on his providence. Well, not only does, uh, is Paul aware of God's providence and willing to act, but he is honest about his sin and quick to repent. He's honest about his sin and quick to repent. See, the commander doesn't know why the Jews are angry with Paul. Nobody has brought formal charges to him. So what he does is he assembles the Sanhedrin, and that's these group of 70 men who are basically the Supreme Court of Israel. 
And he wants to find out why they are so angry with Paul. And so as they're standing there, here's what Paul does in in chapter 23, verse 1. It says, he looks intently at the council. This is not a man who who is timid and and downward glance, who is filled with guilt over his sin and what he's done wrong. This is a man who is confident in the Lord and fixes his eyes on these men. And here's what Paul says, verse 1. Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up until this day. And so at this moment, that is when it goes from Paul being on trial to the Sanhedrin being on trial. Because what he is saying is if you're going to fight against me, I have a good conscience. I'm obeying God. So if you're going to, if you're going to persecute me, if you're going to condemn me, you are condemning God ultimately. And so he makes them realize that this is about him being obedient to God. But that infuriates Ananias, the high priest. Why? Well, let's think about Ananias. We are told that he's a cruel and corrupt high priest. The historian Josephus said this. He was a hoarder of money who even took the tithes that belonged to the priests by violence. He's known as a brutal man who cared more for Rome's favor than for Israel's welfare. People hated him. And eventually, Ananias would be, taking, uh, would be uh, disposed as the high priest by King Agrippa and then later kid, killed by Jewish zealots. So why is he so mad? Because he knows his own heart. Here is a man who can stand and, it, before him and say, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up until this day. And that sets a man who's under conviction about the reality of sin on fire. And then in verse 2 it says, The high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him, strike him on the mouth. So, verse 3, Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, Would you revile the high priest? I mean, at this moment, I, in my flesh, am thinking, man, Paul, give it to him. Tell him about it, brother. He doesn't, dirt, he doesn't need to have you slapped. Send judgment on this man, this corrupt man. But that is not Paul's response because Paul is honest about his sin and quick to repent. He had been beaten. They had grabbed him, interrogated. They had falsely accused him. Why does Paul need to repent before them? Why does he need to uh, be aware of his sin. Why? Because he knows the example of Jesus. He knows the example of the one who called him from light to darkness. And this is what it says. 1 Peter 2, 22. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. Paul didn't try to justify his sin. He didn't try to make excuses. In fact, he doesn't compare himself to Ananias. He doesn't say, Ananias, you put me on trial for the truth, but you're a man who disobeys the law of God. You want to condemn me because I am proclaiming the message of the gospel when you are a hypocrite? No, that is not what Paul does. What he does is he shows uh, respect and he says, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest For it is written, you shall not speak evil against the ruler of your people. When we speak, we should always be a people who show respect and restraint because that's the example of Christ. And we don't need to compare ourselves to other people's sin. 
We don't need to say, well, at least I'm not like so-and-so. At least I'm not bad as so-and-so. Listen to what John MacArthur said. He said, don't ever think of your sin in relation, to how, in relation to how bad others are. Always think of your sin in relation to how holy God is. My sin is only to be compared with the absolute holiness of God. Paul didn't say, well, you forced me into it. Paul didn't say, well, you deserve it. Paul said, I'm sorry, I sinned. I did not know he was the high priest. I stand in violation of God's word. Paul was aware of his own sin. And he was quick to repent, and so should we. Finally, we have to be transformed in the Lord's presence and lovingly restored. Paul admits that he disrespected the high priest. And then goes on to begin again, and, and he causes this division by saying that this all has to do with the resurrection because that, that group, the Sanhedrin, is comprised of Pharisees and Sadducees. Now, the Pharisees were the religious conservatives of their day. They believed in the resurrection. They believed in spirits and angels, heaven and hell. The Sadducees did not. They thought that once you died, that was it, nothing more. And so here, this group that's not even united in themselves wants to stand in judgment of Paul and say that they are judging him based on truth. But they can't even agree. So we see that when Paul perceived that they were, uh, they were one part Sadducees and the other part Pharisees, verse 6, he cried out to the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of a Pharisee. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, he, he, a dissension arose among the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angels, nor spirits, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes in the Pharisees' party stood up and contended, We find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down, take him away from among them by force, and bring him into the barracks. Aren't religious people funny? Oh, they're united against this thing. One word spoken, and what happens? They're divided. It's about the group, which group's right, which group's right. And the Pharisees are, are willing to throw this whole thing out the door. Why? Just so they can prove the Sadducees wrong. So we know that this has nothing to do with truth, but this has everything to do with their, their own pride. They're not condemning Paul, but they condemn themselves in this moment. And so you can imagine the Apostle Paul, what he must have felt at this time. He's taken away He's put in the barracks all by himself. He's been beaten. He's almost been flogged. He's been rejected by brothers and sisters who think that he is a, 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 someone who brings division to the body of Christ. He's been rejected by his kinsmen according to the flesh. All he's tried to do is testify to the gospel and the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ. And now he's all alone. You can imagine, was he sitting there thinking, man, I wish I hadn't lost my temper. I wish I hadn't lost my temper because maybe the, the high priest, he's not going to listen to the gospel. Maybe he's not, he's not going to hear the truth of the gospel because I lost it. Paul is absolutely dejected, but Paul is not alone. Chapter 23, verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. 
Paul's not alone. His struggle, his hurt, his pain, the rejection that he is feeling is not unaware. It's not unknown by the Lord. But it says, the following night, the Lord stood by him. You know, I was thinking on this passage and the other morning, my son, he, he wakes up really happy baby. And now he likes to play peekaboo. He'll grab his, his, uh, his blanket and he'll kind of pull it up and all of a sudden he'll pull it down and he'll just start laughing. And it was in that moment that I just started to think, is this, is this kind of somehow an example of the way we treat God sometimes? That, that the circumstances of life, we just raise above and we think, man, he's not there. He's gone. He doesn't care anymore. He doesn't want to use me. I'm not worthy. And we allow that. But if we'll just put those things down and look, we'll see the face of our loving Savior staring at us, standing beside us. And what is he going to say? Take courage. Jesus tells Paul, take courage. Can we hear those words when we get discouraged and feel like the world is pressing in on us? Can we hear his words, take courage? When we feel like it's difficult to be bold and proclaim the gospel, can we hear him say, take courage? When we feel like we've failed him and that we're unworthy and we could never be used by him, could we hear him say, take courage? Why? Because he's not done with us. And he's not done with Paul. What does he say to Paul? Verse 11, you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Paul, you did what you were supposed to do. And I'm not finished with you. The same is true for us. Can the same be, can the same be said of us? Are we testifying about him? Can we trust him in the midst of, of difficult situations? Can we hear him say that you will testify of me? See, we're going to have an opportunity in a week to go to, uh, throughout the city and participate in these missions efforts for Mission LaGrange. Would you hear him say, take courage and lead you to participate in one of those? That you can proclaim the gospel, that you can share your testimony of salvation by grace through faith, that you can serve somebody in the name of the Lord for his glory. Why? Because he is providentially using us for his means in this earth. He has entrusted us with the call to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. And what are the two promises that he gives us in that verse in Matthew 28? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. So when we go, we go in the authority of King Jesus. We go as his ambassadors. And then what does he say? I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. We are not alone in this. We are not alone in this calling to go and make disciples, to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in all of Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. But he is providentially using you and I to accomplish his purpose in this world. As the musicians make their way up, I just want to share a final story with you. I was able to have an opportunity to serve on a team in London, England when I was in college. And about three days before we left, my grandmother passed away from pancreatic cancer. And I was faced with this decision, do I go or do I stay? Do I attend the funeral or do I go on this trip? Well, I knew in my heart that God had called me to go on this trip. So I honestly just did not struggle in that moment. But I knew I was supposed to go. 
I knew that my grandmother wasn't there, that she was in the presence of Jesus and everything was going to be all right in that moment. And so I just obeyed what the Lord had put on my heart. And we're serving in England. And one day I'm serving beside this Korean and his English is not that great, but he's trying his best to witness. And he comes running up to me and he says, he says, come here, I just need you to come here for a second. Help me out. And he had started sharing with this man. And he was trying to share the gospel and he was having a difficulty. And so I walk over and I, I introduce myself and I say, hey, we're, we're, just, we're here to talk to people about Jesus. He looks at me and he says, you know, my grandmother, she used to go to church. She knew something about Jesus. I said, you know what, mine too. And she's in his presence right now. God providentially ordained that a small town kid from Tennessee fly to London, England to share that story in that moment. Not because of me, because he brought it about by his good purpose. That's his providence. That's not chance. That's not coincidence. That's our sovereign God. And listen to me. Let's just get real. Some of us are hurting right now really bad. We've got things going on and we feel like we're being pressed on every side. Can we hear the call of Christ? Take courage. You've witnessed to me and you will witness about me. Can we allow him to take those moments and in his presence where it says there is fullness of joy, be transformed. Is he calling you to do something here in Mission LaGrange? I don't know what it is. Whatever he's speaking, listen to his voice because he is with us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are providentially bringing about something more glorious than we can even imagine. And for some reason, you have chosen us to be a part of this task. And so I pray that you would lead us in this moment. Allow us to surrender our lives to you and to trust in you and to take courage and be your witnesses. In Christ's name, amen. You can stand and as we sing, if you need to come down and pray, you can pray. Just respond to what God's putting on your heart. Thank you for joining today's sermon. We would love to hear how today's message blessed you. Use the Contact Us link on our website at rosemontchurch.org. God bless.